Today's message is about teamwork. It's, it's, it's ultimately about the body of Christ and about working together. And so uh, before we read the, the scripture this morning, I want to just tell a little story to you. When I first uh, took a church as lead pastor uh, some years ago, the facility that we met in, which was somewhat sizable, uh, had fallen subject to neglect and disrepair and it really needed a lot of work. And so after a, a few months there, um, we had a work day, which some of you all know, work day at a church is folks get together, volunteer in the life of the church and attend to the physical plant, the, uh, the building and, and property and grounds there of the church. And so we did that. And uh, that afternoon afterwards, as tired as I was, I wrote up a little uh, sort of, it's intended to be humorous kind of summary of what transpired that day. And I thought I'd read to you, not the whole thing, about a third of it, maybe, maybe half, um, uh, just to give you kind of the flavor of what that first work day was like for me at a church where I was the senior pastor. So here's part of my write-up. And the Spirit of the Lord was moving upon the entire board of deacons so that they rose up with one voice and said, Come ye who love the Lord and hasten to his house for it doth lie in need of paint and spackle. Get thee to thy church, and bringest not an empty hand, but come hither with thy shovel, thy rake, and forget not thy extension cord. Now it came about, when the appointed day of work came, uh, came nigh, the chairman of the diaconate took his stand in their midst, and spoke thusly, saying, Get thee to thy station which I have assigned unto thee, lest I smite thee with my fierce wrath. Immediately much labor commenced as the people put their hand to many a task. Certain men among them painted the necessary rooms, both for male and for female did they paint. One of their number laid carpet, for he was a carpet layer. Handmaidens among them did paint an entire hallway. Youth sanctified the lot reserved for thy mechanized chariots. Now these and many more mighty acts were performed at the church, both inside and out. For time should fail me if I were to recount all the doors and windows that were hung, the shrubs and trees that were pruned, and the wheelbarrows that were filled with cuttings. When morning came, uh, and by the way, I read this, it was a Saturday workday, Sunday worship we gathered and as part of the message that day I read this. When morning came, they gathered in the assembly for worship with hearts full of joy and sunburn of neck. The youth were sprightly as ever, but some of the others were sore of back. These things I have written that ye might be mindful what the Lord can do when his people say, let us arise and build. So I thought that would be a fun way to kind of broach the uh, subject this morning of teamwork and working together. We are in the book of Nehemiah. We are walking through it chapter by chapter. Today is chapter 3, and due to its length, 32 verses, I'm going to read now the first dozen for, for a couple of reasons. One, due to its length, partly, and also due to the flavor of it. Um, you'll, you'll, you'll get the drift as we read. It, it's about how folks work together. And so in these series of messages on restoration continued, today is about the people God uses. 
Hear then God's word. This is Nehemiah chapter 3, the first 12 verses, page 469, and just on to the next. In your pew Bible, it's also provided for your convenience on the back of the sermon outline. And this is about rebuilding the wall in Jerusalem. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him, the man of Jericho built. And next to them, Zakur, the son of Imri, built. The sons of Hasanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts and its bars. And next to them, Meremoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, son of Meshezabel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Bana, repaired. Next to them, the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their lord. Interesting note. Verse 6, Joyada, son of Paseah, and Meshulam, the son of Besodea, repaired the gate of Yeshanah. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them repaired Malatiah, the Gibeonite, and Jadon, the Maranathite, the men of Gibeon and of Mizpah, the seat of the governor, and the province beyond the river. Next to them, Uzziel, the son of Harhiah, goldsmiths, repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired, and they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Verse 9, next to them, Raphiah, the son of Hur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to them, Jediah, the son of Harumaf, repaired opposite his house. And next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashabneah, repaired. Malkijah, the son of Harim, and Hashub, the son of Pahat Moab, repaired another section and the tower of the ovens. Next to him, Shalom, the, the son of Halohesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired he and his daughters. This is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray. Lord, we know that all scripture is inspired by you. It is God-breathed. We know also, Lord, that some parts of Scripture are easier to understand than others. And here in this section of history, we would ask you, Lord, the living God, what do you have to say to us, your servants, today? We pray that you would bring Holy Spirit illumination to bear now on your word and in our hearts and lives. We pray for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so other than being thankful that you weren't the one pronouncing those names, and that is also part of why I didn't read an additional 20 verses, I wonder what you were thinking uh, as we read there. Now, I have in your study guide an introduction. It's a little paragraph. I am going to read it. I know you can read, but uh, I am going to read it. It comes straight out of the Reformation Study Bible Notes. And it says this, and this is a good overarching view of this chapter, including the portion just read. It says this, this chapter underscores an important theme of Ezra and Nehemiah. The people of God as a whole, and not just the great leaders, the great leaders being Ezra and Nehemiah, 
and also Zerubbabel. The people as a whole, not just the great leaders, are vital for accomplishing God's redemptive purpose. All of God's people work together to rebuild the wall. Clergy, uh, professional ministers, and laity, the, the lay people, craftsmen and tradesmen by town and by family, each contributing to the completion of the whole. Well, I can't really improve upon that summary, hence I provided that for you in your notes. Now, with that said, we'll make a few other observations on the passage, and then we're going to shift gears to the New Testament and talk about how this theme of all of God's people uh, working together is played out in the New Testament, and from that, we'll draw some applications for us today. So just a few things to know about this job. If you, know, if you were kind of lost in the geography of it all, last week uh, I had a map, I think it was last week, I had a map of Jerusalem, the surveillance, the night reconnaissance mission, you might remember Nehemiah did. He and just a few men, they went around a portion of the wall, starting on the, the west side down to the southern tip and back up a ways until the rubble, which is established by archeology, span the rubble down the east side prevented them from passing. He went a ways further on foot and then retraced his steps and went, went back in. So this story about the rebuilding is roughly the same, but it continues on. The work that they did was roughly two miles, roughly two miles of walls. When you say a wall, what kind of wall were they building? Well, not, not you know, a wall like this that you could maybe do in a, a couple of days. Uh, not just a brick wall by your driveway at home, but one that was several feet thick. In fact, the leading commentary says it was eight, eight feet thick at points. So this is very significant, huge stones. It was an engineering feat, not just a, a home remodeling project. Roughly two miles long, 40 second sections repaired in this restoration project. And uh, as I said, it's confirmed by archaeology, at least at points. Uh, pivotal work done by Kathleen Kenyon in the early 1960s. Some additional notes in the passage, some things from where we read and, and beyond the rest of the chapter. Number one, you see the high priest involved in the rebuilding effort. Verse one, Eliashib. Uh, we know a little bit about this, this gentleman. He was the grandson of Jeshua who was the high priest with Zerubbabel. By way of quick review, there are three waves of returnees back to the land. The Persian king, the foreign king, says the Jewish folks could go back home and rebuild Jerusalem. And this happened with varying degrees of success in three waves of returnees read respectively by first Zerubbabel and then Ezra and then our friend Nehemiah that we're reading about today, okay? Um, Nehemiah was working outside of his comfort zone, right? He formerly was part of the king's court, a position of some prestige, some eminence and wealth and respect and trust, but also he was a slave, and so he was disposable, and his job was somewhat hazardous to his health, at least potentially, right? He was cup-bearer to the king. That meant that he sampled the, the drink, certainly, if not the food, before it got to the king's table, before it got to his mouth, 
so that if, there was, if it was laced with poison, Nehemiah is the one that would die, not the king. And so now, here in this building project, in chapter 3, he has been appointed by the king, governor of this province, and now we see him doing the work of a surveyor, a foreman, a contractor. We see this high priest out there working alongside the people with the tools on this rebuilding effort. Other people worked outside of their comfort zone as well. Goldsmiths are mentioned here in the passage we read and again in verse 32. Perfumers. Um, they worked with fragrances, right? Aloe and myrrh and spices and ointments and things like that. Talk about expanding your circles of confidence. I have a friend uh, who has been in prison ministry and men's ministry for many, many years. He ministers now down in Florida. And he is really good at helping people take steps of faith. In fact, the organization that he leads is, is titled Risk Takers for Christ. Helping people take steps of faith to do this very thing that I've mentioned. Expand your circles of confidence. Work outside of your comfort zone. My friend Dale is very good about deploying people, lay people in the body of Christ and getting them to do outreach in their community. To reach out to at-risk youth in their neighborhoods. To uh, uh, do prison ministry and by playing sports, basketball and other things and go into the prisons. Talk about breaking faith barriers. My friend Dale is great at helping people in the body of Christ do this very thing. Another note uh, from chapter 3, we left off at verse 12, and in verse 12 it mentions that women pitched in. Uh, perhaps this gentleman had no daughters, and it specifically mentions that his daughters helped do the work. A quick foray over to the New Testament where we'll be some more later, but right now, Romans 16, here are verses 1 and 2 uh, about this one particular woman. Uh, Roman, Romans chapter 16 says this about Phoebe. The first two verses, give a listen. Paul says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sancria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints, and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. By the way, I just noticed as I was reading, verse 3, greet Prissa and Aquila. Those were his co-workers, the tent makers that he worked with. Prissa, that's short for Priscilla, another woman. And it's interesting, she's mentioned when he meets them, they're, they're called Aquila and Priscilla. But then here in verse 3 in Romans 16 and another place, it twice mentions the lady first, gives her that nickname, Prissa, Prissa and Aquila. Um, you know, Tom and Kelly. I'm going over to Tom and Kelly's. Going over to Kelly and Tom's. I don't know. Tom and Kelly's has a better rig to it, if you ask me. But anyway, a, a woman, uh, another woman is noted, and we'll see more later. Uh, Levites, they were basically assistants to the priests in the worship that was observed in Jerusalem at the time. Temple servants, verse 26. So I uh, assume if the, if the Levites were assistants to the priests, the temple servants were sort of assistants to the Levites. Sons of local officials, verses 9 and 12. The point is, the picture is, we see families 
households, the whole community in action. But note, verse 5, and I did sort of refer to it during our time of reading, the nobles of Tekoa refused to help serve their Lord. They wouldn't deign to do the work. They wouldn't humble themselves. It was God's work. Remember in chapter 2, the end of it we saw last week, Nehemiah gave his pitch to the people. This work had laid dormant, started by you know, Ezra, who had come a, a dozen, 13 years earlier, reinstituted the law, and some work was done. But Ezra chapter 4, uh, and back under Zerubbabel's leadership, things had come to a screeching halt under King Artaxerxes. But Artaxerxes signed off on this change in foreign policy and said, you can get going again. And yet these nobles of Tekoa refused, even though other citizens of note, other prominent persons were involved in the work, these guys refused to serve the Lord in this way. Derek Kidner calls this petty pride on their part. Petty pride. So the nobles of Tekoa wouldn't get their hands dirty, but the people of Tekoa did two sections of the wall. We read about one of them. The other one is mentioned in verse 27. And there are other people in chapter 3 that did more than one section of wall. Merimot is mentioned in verse 4 and later at verse 21. There's another guy, um, debate about the name, but possibly another guy in verse uh, 18 and 24. So some people did multiple sections of the wall. They worked nearby where they lived. That only made sense for ease of access, right? Also, perhaps goal ownership, taking pride in your neighborhood, your, your neck of the woods. And they had to work shoulder to shoulder. They had to work side by side to accomplish the work together. One last thing as we make these observations about the passage is that lost in what we read, the English Standard Version translation, which is a very excellent translation, is the fact that the contribution of a fellow named Baruch in this passage was described as, in, in the original language, the Hebrew, and it is mentioned in the New American Standard translation of the Bible. It says that he did his work zealously. And the Hebrew word there that's employed in the text, as I said, it just kind of lost, quite frankly, in uh, doing a little translation analysis here in the ESV. That word zealously comes from a word meaning heat or anger. Um, so in this sense, it means he was stirred up, he was provoked, he was, he was zealous about this work. And uh, he was fired up, you might say. When's the last time you were fired up about being about your father's business? Or has your attitude become perhaps like the nobles of Tekoa, where you, know, you pay lip service, but you're not going to actually get involved? We have to think about these things. New Testament elaborations, and then we'll move towards some applications and ultimately towards the Lord's Supper today, because we understand the gospel, not only in the preaching of the word, but also through the visible portrayal of the death of Christ in the sacrament. So letter C in your outline is New Testament elaborations and applications. And points one and two, I'll be very brief and spend some more on point three. First, under letter C, number one, Jesus used fishermen. 
should be plural. Uh, forgive my typo, I put a singular or maybe it was auto-corrected and I missed it. Uh, Jesus used fishermen and an IRS agent and many key women to play crucial roles in his own ministry. Jesus used fishermen, now not to denigrate the guys, right? The fellows that we read about in the Gospels. Um, it doesn't mean that they were completely unlearned or uneducated or even that they, they didn't know the law of God. As, as Jewish boys, they would have learned the word of God. First, probably at their mother's feet. They would have memorized huge sections of God's word. When, the, when they are described in the Gospels as being uneducated men, it doesn't mean that they were dummies or had no schooling at all. It means that they were not formerly trained by a rabbi. That's what it means. So not to denigrate these guys or their, their mental faculties. They're, they're businessmen, right? And, uh, Jesus, but, but they're ordinary guys, ordinary Joes. Jesus used fishermen, an IRS agent. What do I mean by that? And I say this lovingly because my mother was an IRS agent for a long time. And, uh, you know, kind of get a bad rap, but I saw what she did and her co-workers really trying to assist taxpayers. Really, really kind of bending over backwards and reaching out to folks before taking, you know, ultimately being a part of making seizures and stuff. If you don't render unto Caesar, right? But who, what do I mean by an IRS agent? in Jesus' day. Well, Matthew, of course. Matthew the publican. Matthew the tax collector. And so he was sort of a go-between, somewhat despised by the Romans who employed him because he was Jewish, and by his own people, the Jews, because he worked for the Romans. If he was in a prison, he might be kind of like a trustee. Sort of one of us, but not really. Sort of one of them, but not really. And not only collecting taxes, but making a living from doing it. And so you don't collect just the minimum. You've got to have a little something. Not talking about skimming, but you've got to pad it a little bit to make your living from doing it. And some of them padded it more than others. These are the type of people that Jesus used. Fishermen, an IRS agent, and many key women. We've already commented about the role of women in Nehemiah chapter 3, but how about in the ministry of Christ? Many places we could go to in the New Testament, quite frankly, but just one of them, maybe the most succinct information for us, is contained in Luke 8. Listen, listen to the first three verses there. Speaking of Jesus, soon afterward he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him. The twelve, technical term, right, for the guys we call the apostles. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's household manager. So she was more of a prominent citizen. Her, her husband had a pretty good job. Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. So these were the ministering women that were part of, uh, not of the 12, but of those in, in Matthew 12 called 
disciples. They were followers of Christ. They were learners of the Lord. They prayed. Think about the gatherings in the, the upper room, not when Jesus was alone with the 12, but afterwards when they're gathering for prayer. Uh, their women are included. Jesus, when he rose from the dead, he honored women by appearing first to women. So as we continue to think about teamwork, working together, uh, number two under letter C, Paul employed youth on his missionary journeys. Paul employed youth or youths on his missionary journeys. A couple of examples, John, Mark, and Timothy. Now, I'm not going to give you chapter and verse, but we could trace that down pretty quickly. Uh, Young John Mark, and by the way, John Mark got homesick on the first missionary journey, and he went home to his mom's house, his mom who had hosted some of those prayer gatherings in Jerusalem. And uh, remember the sharp disagreement between good old Barney and... Paul in Acts 15, it was over John Mark. Uh, but in the next decade, Paul's assessment of John Mark changes radically. What about young Timothy, who becomes Paul's protege, also a teenager, when Paul met him? So we see this principle of teamwork, of collaboration, of working together, not only in Nehemiah 3, when they were building a physical wall that had spiritual significance, but also in the New Testament as they're going about sharing the message of the kingdom of God and the story of the gospel of a resurrected Savior. We see this in Jesus' own ministry, in the Apostle Paul's ministry. And Paul, writing under the influence of the Holy Spirit, says this from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. This is point three, the last point on your outline. We're mutually interdependent in the body of Christ. We're mutually interdependent in the body of Christ. Listen to these words from 1 Corinthians 12, and I'll make um, three comments in particular about them. Uh, this is provided for you uh, for your convenience on the back of the sermon outline, the bottom of the page. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. Verse 17, if the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. He continues, verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker 
are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And on our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God is appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Verse 29, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles? That's rhetorical, and the answer is no. Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. What is that still more excellent way, by the way, just as an aside? You probably have heard 1 Corinthians 13. What is that known as? The love chapter, often read at weddings. So what is the more excellent way? The way of love. So there's much in this passage. I'm going to focus on three brief points from what we just read in the New Testament about body life. And here they are. They're not written in your notes. If you're a jotter, it's time to jot. Regeneration by the Spirit, arranged by the Father, and all are necessary in the body of Christ. It's Trinitarian, by the way, guys. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Regeneration by the Spirit. Where do we see that? In verse 13, in one spirit we are all baptized and all were made to drink of one spirit. What is that talking about? That's talking about coming to life in the Lord through the ministry of the spirit. It's not talking about water. Let me tell you this, friends. Christians see the word water in the New Testament and they go crazy. Uh, They see the word baptism, they go crazy thinking about water. How much water? Who are we going to put the water on? And they go, they go crazy. 1 Corinthians 12 has nothing to do with water. When it mentions here baptism, it means union with Christ, identification with Christ because the Spirit has been sent rushing into your heart. More Pauline the- theology, Romans 8. The Spirit has been sent rushing into your heart by which you cry out, Abba, Father. It's the Spirit that quickens. It's the spirit that regenerates. Re, again, generates Genesis, beginnings, birth. It's the spirit that makes you born again. John chapter 3. Jesus talks about what it means to be born again. Peter talks about the washing of regeneration. Uh, Oh, no, he talks about being born again to a living hope. Paul talks about the washing of regeneration, I think, in Titus. So, Being mutually interdependent in the body of Christ means that we have this commonality. We've all been regenerated by the Spirit. Second, arranged by God, the Father. We see this at verse 18 in 1 Corinthians 12. God arranged the members, each 
one of them, as he chose. We see it again down in verse 24. God has so composed the body. It is God that chooses. It is God that elects. He selects and appoints some unto eternal life, and as many as were appointed unto eternal life believe. Because they've been made alive, they've been quickened, they've been regenerated, they've been born again in the Spirit. And the response is faith and repentance to believe the gospel of Christ risen and crucified, uh, crucified and risen. To, to believe that by faith and to turn from sin and turn to God in trust, reliance, and dependence. And then lives are transformed and changed and results in new obedience. This passage is Trinitarian. We've seen regeneration by the Spirit, arrangement by God the Father. And just a quick, quick word of that, about that before I go on. If you're in Christ, you're not there by accident. If you are a member of the body of Christ, God didn't make a mistake. And I think that's part of what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 12 is you can think, well, I'm not like uh, Pastor Tom. I can't do public speaking, therefore I don't count. God doesn't need me. God can't use me. No. Different roles equal value. That's what he's saying in this, this metaphor here about the, the body. It's almost comical, isn't it? That if certain parts of the body say, well, well I guess I don't really count. Well, it, it doesn't change that they're still a part of the body. I think of a couple of things. One is the most painful injury I think I've ever personally had in my whole life is I broke my little toe, my pinky toe, playing basketball. It slid under. You think, well, who cares about a pinky toe? That was the most painful thing I ever had in my life because it's used for balance, and you put all your weight on it every, every other step. The other thought, the other thought I had was, uh, uh, you remember the old, I think it's a Disney movie or Pixar, one, you know, one of them, uh, Monsters, Inc.? You might not remember the, the name, Mike Wazowski, but he, some, some people are laughing because they do. He, he's the guy, he's just a big head with feet, a, bit, a big head and an eye. That's, that's all there is. That's what I think about when I read 1 Corinthians 12. I guess it tells you something about me. But uh, um, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them, as he chose. It's his sovereign choice. He predestined you to be included in the body and he sees you as having a vital role. You're necessary. You're needed. You're not an afterthought. Regeneration by the Spirit, arranged by God the Father, and we're all necessary in the body of Christ. When it says the body has many members, I'm not talking about church members, I'm talking about parts, parts of the body. Members of, means parts there. Remember in the old, uh, the old movie, I grew up looking forward to watching it every year at Christmas time. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Remember when he strikes out on his own and then he uh, meets Herbie. You know who Herbie was? Herbie was, wanted to be a dentist. And what did he say? Let's be independent together. I think that's actually a pretty good exhortation. Let's be independent together. Think about it. You were created by God, and you were made by God to fulfill 
a purpose. You were created by God to be sound and to be whole. That's how you were made. But unfortunately, there is a problem that has entered each one of us, and that's sin. And so we're, we're, we're not sound, we're not whole, and we drip and we kind of leak and spill out onto other people. And that's true of every one of us. It's true of the brightest and the best of us. Uh, let's see, I see my friend Bob back there in the back. We'll make this one Bob. And Bob, if you, got, if you know Bob, he is wonderful. He's a good brother and he's a, he's a servant and he's dependable and I consider him a, a, a friend. But, you know, Bob's got, got his holes too. And then, and then what, what, what about me? We'll make, this one, we'll make this one me. Tom. Here I am, Tom. I've got plenty of holes. I've already kind of pre-drilled my holes here, but uh, I've, got, I've got plenty of holes. Makes me think of the old Rocky movie when he's talking about getting together with Adrian, right? Well, the way I see it is uh, you, I got gaps and you got gaps. And, uh, you know, we put our gaps together. Well, the, the, the problem is... Individually, we all have these gaps. We all have these holes. But what if we put enough people working together, even, even ones with holes, what if we put enough people working together? We're, we're better to get, but still not perfect. And I think that's part of the message of 1 Corinthians 12. Part of the message of Numbers chapter 3 is that we're better together than we are on our own. But the gospel goes a step forward. The gospel tells us that there is one um, who is perfect, and his name is Jesus. And he is described in the scriptures as being whole or sound. He has complete shalom. And he loved you enough that he went... Whoops. Messed my cross up a little bit. He loved you. I've got a cross with a heart. He loved you and he went to the cross for you. And he doesn't have flaws or sins. He's not marred by the fall. And so if we are all found to be together in Christ by someone who is sound and whole and he is our ultimate identity, then we can fulfill the purpose that God has for us. Then we can find soundness and wholeness as a body in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that the gospel teaches us about body life and that the teaching about body life isn't just, just about teamwork. It's about that, but it's more than that. It's about a savior. It's about a community of people whose lives are being transformed as your spirit breathes life into us, as we were uh, foreordained and, and forechosen in the foreknowledge of God the Father, and that we have received redemption through the blood of Christ, through his perfect life, his righteous, uh, his righteous and perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his triumphant resurrection from the dead, and therefore he gives life to all. We worship you and we praise you. And we pray that you would work in our hearts and minds and our lives and in our local churches, including Grace Presbyterian Church, 
so that we might be striving together for the faith of the gospel and so that you would be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.